truth. What is truth? Truth is reality. It can be confirmed by evidence. It is verifiable. And we seek to find it. Welcome to Euphonaut Radio. Euphonaut Radio is a show that takes you on a truth journey outside the matrix to examine the worlds of ufology, the paranormal, and new science. Open your mind as we search for the truth that most are afraid to discuss. This is Euphonaut Radio with Jesse Randolph and Christopher J. Brown, only on PSN Radio. Welcome everyone, Euphonaut Radio, kids, gentlemen, ladies, teachers, friends, clergy, to a power-packed Monday night, Labor Day, end of Labor Day, I know everybody's bummed, Euphonaut Radio, extravaganza show, Jesse Randolph here at the mic with the Honorable Chris J. Brown at my side, and of course, as always, the angel of ufology, Mr. Angel Espino. Welcome, everybody. Hey, guys. How you doing? Howdy. Okay, not all at once here. Let's, uh, how are we all doing, Chris? I'm doing great. How's, how are you? How's Angel? I'm doing fantastic. That'd be fantastic. Okay. Yeah, we got to we got to up a little bit tonight. I'm lying through my teeth, uh, by the way. That was a that was a great show. <laughs> we were just listening to if you missed it, Future Theater had Bruce Maccabee on, and uh, he's obviously a legend in the old guard of ufology. And I found it amusing listening to the program that he was downplaying the fact that he was asked to brief the CIA, I believe it was, on the uh, assessment of the uh, extraterrestrial situation, so to speak, back in the day. Uh, I believe it was in the late '80s. Um, and a guy like that, it just sort of downplayed it as, uh, wasn't that big a deal, but I thought that it was definitely a big deal and, um, interesting stuff like that pops up all the time. Another interesting tidbit from that show was the fact that, uh, the man who received the original, uh, MJ 12 papers, uh, I believe as well as the original microfiche slides, in an envelope in his mailbox one day, this uh, gentleman, Jamie Shandara, um, I'm probably pronouncing his last name wrong. The point being is that no one seems to know what has happened to him except Bill, and Bill was pressed for time, and that's another person who just has a wealth of information always mm-hmm. at his uh, beck and call there as far as ufology goes. Pretty amazing stuff. Now, gentlemen, I have to admit something. Yes. And Uh-oh. to my uh, listeners here, you know, I listen to these shows all week long now. I really do. I, when, when I came back, I came back. I, I have them on because of technology. It's so cool now. I bought one of these. Um, first of all, I listen to everything on TuneIn. So if you don't have TuneIn, that's the one to have. It's right, right, really right. great for listening to live radio, especially this program and others on the network. But I have all my UFO radio network programs on different stations that I enjoy right there in front of me and I can just tap on them on my iPad and now I have one of these um, uh, Bluetooth speakers connected to the pad that's waterproof so I can take that 
I don't even have to carry my iPad. Now I can be super freaking lazy and just have this speaker that looks like a little bazooka. It's like a little tiny bazooka speaker. Remember, Angel, back in the day, the bazooka? You get in the back of your car, right? No. I remember it, and they were great. Thanks. I appreciate that, Chris. Yep. Uh, yeah, so I have that, and I can take that in the shower, and I turn it up and listen to the, my shows, even when I'm soaping up, uh, which might be too much to it, uh, admit here, but it sure is fun. And I will tell you, is, is Angel on the line, too? Are you listening here, sir? I am always listening. Okay, because I want to tell you this. You're going to be <laughs> surprised. Uh-oh. I actually t- I tuned into Dark Matter. I t- oh, boy. <laughs> I tuned into Dark Matter the other day. Uh, I will say Dark Matter obviously has the best uh, audio, which is something that they have always strived for, you know, to have really good audio. So sometimes if I have the shower going, Dark Matter is a great selection just because of audio fidelity so I can actually hear anything. Okay, so sometimes they just win by default because of that when I'm searching for something to listen to uh, while I'm soaping. And the point I'm making is I did flip on Dark Matter the other day, and I think it was, oh, I don't remember what day. Somebody helped me in the chat room uh, if, they, if they still listen. But basically, it was the only show in the history of all the paranormal shows that I've heard that creeped me out, that really fucking creeped me out. Not only creeped me out, it creeped out my fiance. And I tell you, even Heather did a pretty decent job for a change. She was pretty good. She didn't inter- interrupt too much. She stayed on topic. She didn't sort of meander into boring stories that I didn't want to hear. She stayed on topic with this show. She did a good job. I have to give her credit for it. And Hold on. Are you giving Heather a compliment? I'm giving her a compliment. Why not? Shocking. Turn of events. Look, I'm shocked. I'm bewildered. I am. I am open. I, I'm a bunch of words that I don't even know what they mean right now. That, that's why I said I was making a, an astounding revelation here uh, that I did enjoy a dark matter radio show post Art Bell, um, and this was the one. If you that's did not the not shocking catch part. The, show, the part could, is that you enjoyed Heather. That's the shocking part. That's, but because she, she had, really did a nice job of facilitating, and she had a lot of good clips from this guy. And these clips were of like Malachi Martin or somebody doing an exorcism. It wasn't EVP garbage, okay? It wasn't, you know, you know that kind of stuff. And, um, this was creepy. And there was no doubt in my mind that this was the real McCoy. Uh, that this little girl who was possessed or whoever it was was not, was not doing this, the, these crazy voices and such. So I urge you, uh, I don't think I've given you a, a lot of information to go find it, but... So, uh, so it was a uh, Midnight in the Desert episode. Yes. Okay. It was an MIT well, that expl- that expl- program. That explains why the audio was good because they like spent all the big bucks on that one show. Yeah. No. No. They spend money on audio. Also, look, they spend time. She, I know, she takes obviously puts time into the programming because uh, they had the clips ready and such, and you know stuff that. Um, you got to do if you're putting together a show like that, especially when somebody has Correct. really stuff to bring, right? Yep, yep. So, uh, I thought I, I, would I like Heather. I think, I think Heather uh, eventually is going to be really good at this. Eventually, who? Heather. 
Oh yeah, why not? I, I think it, I think many people uh, from the get go said it may have been an experience kind of thing, um, as to why she didn't seem all that good at what she was doing at first, uh, you know. And then some other folks were like, "Hey, you know, what, why don't we just give her a shot and stop bashing her?" But that wasn't the problem. I think a lot of people were not just trying to bash her for the sake of bashing her. I think they were doing it because they were pissed at how the whole thing played out. Uh, they didn't really believe the cover story, so to speak, a lot of people, and they didn't like the replacement. They wanted to be a part of that replacement. They didn't want it to happen so quickly as far as um, probably how the Democrats feel about Tim Kaine, where you're like, really? Hmm, this this howdy duty guy? There? I mean, that's who you pick? You know, I mean, out of all the people that you could pick to be your VP at the Democratic Party, you pick this howdy duty guy that honestly, if something happened to Hillary Clinton, if she was president, I don't want this guy running the show. Absolutely have you seen her? Not. Have you he seen is. her recently with a coughing fits the last few days? It's pretty Look, bad. I, I don't know anything about that. What I do know is that this woman is playing a very strategic game at this point, which is to stay as far away from any sort of press, i.e. conferences, i.e. questions that she can until the election's over. It's the same reason why they released what they could about her FBI meeting recently, the transcripts that were heavily redacted, as everyone knows. And sure as shit, they release it right before the Labor Day holiday so that nobody really gives a flying you-know-what about it, right? Okay. So... That in itself, it's just the plot thickens. It's trickling trickling really as horrible as it is. It seems like to me it's sneakingly trickling toward Hillary like we're going to get a Hillary for president. And she's going to rig them votes just like George Bush Jr. did. Well, the last uh, polls are showing that she's actually down in the polls and uh, Trump actually is upping her in the polls. Wow. I don't so, ever pay attention to the polls at this point. Yeah, in time. well, here's here's the thing. At this point in time, usually whoever is leading in the polls ends up winning. So well, I really hope that she doesn't win. It's going to be a nightmare. Those stupid outfits that she wears, they look like a sign. They look well, like It's a nightmare like, on both sides, in my it, opinion. Well, because either way, is. you slice it. What's that? It is a little bit. I, I kind of want to well, see there's, Trump there's, myself. You know, I'm a Trump man. Well, the thing is, is there is embarrassment on both sides. Mostly on her side, though. Let's be honest. uh, Maybe so. But if you're an intelligent person and let's say you're for Trump, you have to be embarrassed about the way this man has handled himself on multiple occasions and on multiple fronts. I mean, almost like an absolute imbecile, you know, like, uh, again, someone who really just had to sort of just ride the storm here to a certain degree and let Hillary dig her own grave to a large extent. Instead, the guy has really made a mockery of a lot of parts of this. Not only that, in my opinion, uh, and I'm not a, I'm not a pro Hillary person, just, just so everyone listening knows, but it's embarrassing. I think a lot of people who might want to vote for Trump are embarrassed to say that they would just because of the way the man has handled himself and who he panders to. It is not helpful that the people that he shows on his rallies are usually rednecks. It does not help. That is absolutely ab- not true. 
It is true. Have you? Se- Every- no, it's not. Have you seen some of the uh, the actual uh, conventions and events he's attended, and some of the speeches he's done? Some of the, there's that is absolutely not true. He's had he's even had he's even had people that are Mexican Americans come out in support of Trump. I mean, he is that's absolutely not true. Now, f- it- now he's had a, a few rednecks, sure, and some white folks, but. You know, that's just uh, the demographic of America. Sorry to tell you that, Jesse. There are white people, and there are more white people than anything else in this country. And he's going to get him to build that that, that fence or that that, that wall. The wall, the wall, the wall. Not a fence, it's a wall. Angel, so we all know that you're a Trump supporter, and there's obviously nothing wrong with that. But what I would ask you is, are you telling this audience and myself that you haven't been embarrassed to be a Trump supporter at any point because of some of the ridiculous comments made by this person during the election? Oh, he's made some comments that have made me cringe here and there, but nothing to be embarrassed about, I don't think. Uh, so yeah, there's a couple things he said that I'm like, eh, why would you say that? That's kind of stupid. But here's the thing. Hillary has said much worse. She's done much worse. And at the end of the day, he's using a strategy which uh, it's worked so far. He's saying outrageous things to get people's attention. And that stuff works. It worked in the GOP nomination. It's working now. And it's going to land him in the White House at the end of the day. So at the end of the day, if he wins the White House, how crazy was it? Well, I don't believe he's going to win. But that's well, not the we'll issue. See, we'll the see issue in a couple months. Is, we'll see in a couple months. I will stay on target here. Well, the okay, White House is going to be the Trump Towers. He's going to refuse to sleep in the White House. Can I ask you another question, uh, Angel, while we're on the topic? Um, yeah, sure. Why not? Which is, so basically, if you are a Trump supporter, I imagine that you would be fully supportive, fully, because he uses the word extreme vetting, which is like right, this right. sort of uh, rem- reminisce Hitler-esque type of uh, practice that's quite scary when you, when you phrase it that way. Again, I don't think words were chosen very well there, but the point being is... You would be in favor, I would imagine, if you're a Trump supporter of, uh, according to him, uh, deporting approximately 11 million people as soon as he gets into office. First of all, they're not going to deport 11 million people once he gets into office. That's ridiculous. Even he said that. What they're going to do is there's going to be a department of people that are going to check to see who should be deported and who should be uh, you know, not deported immediately. And the people that are deported are going to have a chance, especially the ones that are able to come back because they have families here or whatever, they're going to be given a chance to come in to come in legally. And they're not going to just be sent off to another country and forgotten about. Which, by the way, Jesse, uh, during the GOP nomination, both Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio said that once they were elected president, they would deport the same number of people and they would not give them any chance whatsoever to come back because they broke the law coming to this country to begin with. So Trump was the only one that said, I would, yeah, deport them, but I would give the right ones the chance to come back legally. But nobody, nobody overlooks that. Nobody wants to you know, look at that fact. Well, he's the Martin only one that said that. Ted Cruz are not two people you want to compare. Well, see, I'm better than the, these guys. They're terrible. Everybody exactly. thinks they're terrible. Uh, Ted Cruz probably won't get another office, I would think, because of no, the, he's done. Uh, he did the last at the GOP uh, convention. He's done, yeah. So He's done. I don't see that as... I, I, I don't think that, um, that Trump's choice... For VP was was a good one as well. I don't think Mike Pence is someone that really aided his campaign at all so far. He's really just kind of been this sort of happy lapdog uh, type guy. I could agree with that. And he hasn't really done much. I but think Joe Biden did, did nothing as vice president. 
Well, that's not true. Joe Biden uh, represented a core that Barack Obama was having trouble with, which was blue-collar workers. Yes, white people, exactly. White middle-class working-collar people, which, uh, as you know, are are ringing very well with Trump because they feel as though they have been left in the dark for the past eight years. Okay? So I get why he's getting what he's getting. I don't think he's playing it correctly in a lot of areas and i don't think he has a chance of winning i've never thought he had a chance i don't agree with the polls i don't think if you do the math that this guy is going to be able to turn any of the states around where he would need to win it's already Um, even if even if he's done one or will do one let's say he won new york which won't happen um let's say he wins pennsylvania it's still not going to change the election you would have to win so many states and take them away from the Democratic Party at this point, in my opinion, that I don't think he has a chance. The only chance I think he has is, and this might sound a little crazy, but I think a lot more people get it, is if there's another major scandal, not a minor scandal, not 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 the email one, because that's a boring one. It's got to be juicier. Okay. Uh, and so Assange, if he, he if he's got his pulse uh, if he's got his finger on the pulse of this and he's not lying or just trying to uh, publicize WikiLeaks through this vessel, uh, if he actually has real dirt that's uh, going to hurt her, then uh, I imagine that might be something that could change the outcome. But I don't think he does. Mm-hmm. I think he's full of it. He has proven to be this sort of Lex Luthor-esque type guy uh, not to be trusted. We don't even really know who he's working for um so uh i, I trust see... him more than hillary go ahead put it that way i trust assange more than hillary trust each... would you vote I, for I assange just... for president over hillary be... yes yeah. over hillary over Hi- I, look i would put putin as american president over hillary are you kidding me she's the worst oh, candidate oh, possible. he's great yeah he's putin great. didn't point up with no bs <laughs> welcome to the the Russian yeah. ufology show tonight. Wow. Okay, Putin's <laughs> With great. Me some All right. I'm ready hey, right now. You know, if you're if you're listening tonight, we are talking about a whole bunch of stuff, of course, and I want to hear about everybody's Labor Day weekend and that sort of stuff. Uh, but we do have a very special guest coming out, uh, and we're going to bring him in in ten minutes or in uh, forty. Ten minutes. Yep. I want to bring him in okay, on our ten minutes and perfect. Yeah. And- so oh, I love that. Okay, so let's start talking about who we have tonight because I'm excited about this guy. And here's mm-hmm. my quick intro, kids. If you think Roswell was exciting, if you think that the thought of alien spacecraft crashing onto this planet is a singularity, it's not. It never was. It never has been. Uh, crash retrievals is a subset of ufology that uh, a lot of people focus on. Researchers, uh, Bob Woods comes to mind, and his son, uh, Bob Wood, there's no S, I believe. Uh, And they hosted the Crash Retrieval Conference every year out in uh, Vegas, I believe, for a long time. I don't think they do any longer. Unfortunately, gentlemen, as we all know, budgetary reasons put the kibosh on a lot of this cool shit. But these guys are still around. That's why I was asking about Jamie Shandera uh, and saying what the hell happened to him. Because there are still diamonds in the rough here to speak with. And a guy like Bob Wood 
is uh, someone who knows a lot as well as his, his, his son about crash retrievals, as does our guest tonight. And where I'm going with this is there are many, and when I say many, there are, let's say, I think there have probably been over 50 that I've heard of or close to crash retrievals that have happened on this planet these are extraterrestrial craft that have either been shot down by our people here, meaning the U.S. or another foreign government actually shot these things down, or they crashed because of some strange electromagnetic interference, or we just don't know why. But they do crash. So these people that are saying, and it's a good question, how do they have all this technology, but yet they screw up and crash into the planet? Well, guess what? There's a lot of reasons behind that, and there's a lot of science that we're going to ask our guest about tonight. But the guest tonight, and Chris, do you want to tell everybody what his name is? Harry Drew. Harry Drew, that's right. Yes. He's talking about a very famous crash, and he d devoted a lot of time into researching this one specific crash that many of you probably have never even heard of. And it happened in Kingman, Arizona, in, I believe, 1953. Okay, it's it, and some of you are probably going, what? What is that? Kingman, Arizona? Was that like uh, the part of the Roswell craft where it just skipped off and there were other sites? No, 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 no. This is a separate event. This is a separate crash that no one really knows about except a handful of ufology folks, of course, and researchers who took the time to research this event. Now, 150 questions come to mind for me. Of course, I want to know about the case itself. But I think most people who think about this subject sometimes often wonder, how the heck are they able to cover up these sort of crashes? Okay, How are they able to, you know, when you think about Roswell, because we know so much about it at this point, everyone remembers that big debris field that people would do renditions of and and you'd think about it in your head, and you'd say, oh, my God, there's thousands of pieces of this foil-esque metal debris all over Mac Brazel's ranch and territories around the surrounding area. How the hell did they get every damn piece? I don't care if you had 100 guys or 1,000 guys. Stuff was going to get through the cracks and be left on the ground. And we know, and we know that people have done digging. We know some of the... Uh, Chuck, uh, what's his name over at U UFO Nut? UFO Nut, he calls himself. Him and his uh, sister have done digging, I believe. They've done some excavation work out there, out in Roswell. And as far as I know, really haven't come up with much. So that's something there I want to add. You know, there, it was funny. There was a special that uh, aired, I think it was like either History Channel or Discovery Channel a few years ago, where they went out to the Roswell uh, crash site and they did a metal detector search and they searched around for yes. any debris or whatever. This and guess what, what they found? Of. Guess what, what they found? Nothing. Pieces, pieces of a weather balloon. I was so disappointed. Well, uh, and, and that's what they were. They should have found, which is stuff that would have uh, made sense. Yeah, every 10 years, the government has the to go area. back and uh, sprinkle a little bit more down, you know? <laughs> well, but guys, guys, if you believe the story, <laughs> the way that it was told, we're talking about a ton of wreckage. So that's one of the questions. If you take that, and we know from Clifford Stone, RIP Clifford Stone, and some other folks that were whistleblowers, 
they claim to be part of crash retrieval teams. Okay, these are select groups of uh, Delta Force type uh, clandestine dudes. And if there is a UFO crash, these guys are trained to know how to manipulate the area so that uh, it looks like something it wasn't. And they get the stuff out of there quickly. And anyone who's uh, a witness is dealt with appropriately, et cetera, et cetera. And this is, you know, I mean, if you believe this stuff, this does exist. These teams, these action teams. So I want to ask our guest about that as well. Um, because, I mean, am I the only one here that feels that way? When you hear that there might have been 50-some-odd crashes on this planet of extraterrestrial vehicles, that you'd think to yourself that there'd be a lot more witnesses uh, to the actual event? Yeah. And if there's been 50 of them up to the time of, well, now you got cameras everywhere, well, then there going to be certainly is going to be more, I would think, throughout history. And so maybe, yeah, I would think we'd have the opportunity to to now have a chance to videotape if something like this happens. So well, fifty um, that they're reporting in in some yeah, reporting, channels, sure. but I mean, sure. who knows? There's going to been thousands throughout history. I mean, we really just sure. don't know. And my question we is: Are we shooting? Are we shooting all these down? Are them some of them just crashing yeah. on their own? Like what? You know, what's the deal here? Like the Baltic Sea thing, that well, big huge thing down there. What happened with that? It was even that. Well, we, yeah, but it is a UFO. Is that yeah. is that shot down? Did it crash or who knows? You know, it looks like the Millennium Falcon to me. I don't know. <laughs> it does. Looks like. Well, you know, here's the thing: is that uh, our guest tonight uh, will have some sort of insight in what it was like. I believe he was able to speak with and extract information from the only real witness to this Kingman, Arizona event. Um, and I, I, I might be off course here. I believe it was a farmer of some sort, but this is a slice of this gentleman's life where he's going to be giving us insight in what it's like to actually go through a crash retrieval issue. And uh, whether it be on your property or you were a part of it cause you were camping or you witnessed it. And all of a sudden you're caught up in this crazy a black world that are have to hide these things okay and you know a long time and I, it escapes my memory I, I was interviewing bob wood's son uh, and these guys are all high-end dudes these are all ex-government contractor people weaponry and satellite technology computer technology and i said you know what's it going to take to really get people to believe in this sort of thing the crash retrieval stuff i meant because that's his subset. And he said, you know, actual hatch covers, uh, you know, I-beams, like Jesse Marcel Jr. talked about. We need to actually have our hands on some of that stuff to be able to turn and move the needle mm -hmm. into a place where we haven't gone before. Because right now we're stuck, right? These things are happening, but yeah. everybody's like, how are they happening? That's impossible. How, with all the cell phones uh, Chris just brought up, with all the technology how can they have these humongous crashes go down and uh, be able to just wipe it up and, and wipe everybody's mind and their memories, apparently, because obviously flashy thing, seen... remember? Men in black, flashy thing. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So yeah. our guest tonight, I'm looking forward to hearing about, you know, you where do you go with this stuff, too? Because there's, there's believing in flying saucer technology and the existence of extraterrestrial beings, but then to go to your 
your your friends and colleagues and say that you know you're you're working on actual crash uh, extraterrestrial um, activity, uh, crashed extraterrestrial wreckage that's been recovered by our government and uh, housed in places and researched on and. Uh, that's got to that's got to be hard for people to swallow that pill. So I'm looking forward to the data. I'm looking forward to getting granular with our guest tonight on Euphonaut Radio on a Labor Day Monday, where everyone's kind of going, "Hey, I want to go back to work." Well, guess what? We're going to get a little uh, out there for you tonight, so that you can forget about work for a couple hours here. I I guarantee really nobody's saying that. Just nobody's saying that right now. Nobody's saying what? Do they want to get back to work? Nobody's saying that. Well, well, of course nobody's saying that. All right, <laughs> let's. Uh, this is this is. Uh, what, what's his name again? Harry Reed? Harry. What's Harry his Drew. Name? What's his Harry Drew? Thank Harry you, Drew. Harry Reed. <laughs> Reed. God, <laughs> you're really glad his name. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about Kingman, Arizona, which is an interesting place. Of course, he's got a book. That he's pumping, which is always nice as well, called Seven Days in May, the Kingman UFO story. And I'm excited to have him on. So why don't we take our, our little break, Ski, shall we, uh, Angel? We shall. And we'll get him here on, on, on the show here, and we'll get cracking on how the hell these things crash, and nobody's buzzing around about it. Harry Drew coming up on Euphonaut Radio, talking about alien crash retrievals uh, when we come back. This is uh, Jesse Randolph. We'll be right back. Stay tuned.
professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions, providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology, preventative maintenance and networking support, hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. Youthin' Out Radio on a Monday, Labor Day evening. I'm Jesse Randolph, along with Chris J. Brown, Angel Spino, and our guest tonight. Let's jump right into it and get granular, shall we? His name's Harry Drew. He's an author. He's a historian, a researcher, a doer, as we say on this show, sayers and doers. And he's written a book called Seven Days in May, The Kingman UFO Story, which, again, I've talked about in the last half hour uh, about different crash retrievals and crash events that have gone on this planet besides the Roswell incident. With that, I'd like to introduce Mr. Harry Drew. Hi, Harry. Hello there. Good evening. Happy Labor Day. I hope everyone has had a moderately insane but but sane and safe holiday. Yeah, I well, actually didn't do much of anything. Did you guys do anything? <laughs> I, I slept a lot today. <laughs> that was cool. Yeah, I didn't do anything. Um, you know, Harry, I, I, with the time that we have, which is always going to be short in this topic, uh, I want to jump right in. And you label yourself as a Mojave County historian. Can you go into that and how you ended up getting involved in the subject and where you're based well, out of? Yeah, I am, by profession, I am a historian. And there's a big difference between somebody that claims to be a historian and someone who really is, and uh, I'm also uh, a, a director of museums of anthropology, archaeology, and history, and I made that, that's plural, museums. In fact, um, I was asked to interview in New York for a position with the Smithsonian and declined because I was finishing up a book in Hawaii at the time. Um, but... Uh, so I'm the real deal in regard to that, and I've been around the block in regard to ufology. I live at Kingman. Um, there are and there were many um, elderly old-timers who were witnesses during this time in 1953 in May um, where UFOs were seen, but my research... Uh, document research and interview, first-hand living eyewitness interviews and witnesses uh, who left uh, notes uh, or journals 
that I had access to because of a working relationship I had with some of the old timers here. So, and then I spent six years uh, on and off the desert, all seasons, um, used uh, the help of a good, uh, a remarkable person who was engineer who designed the most advanced ROV flight control system on the world for James Cameron's Mariana Trench dive and was on, on site running that so that Cameron could do that and who stopped his work and came up and ran drones for me with my cameras so that I could read the ground terrain better because over the past 15 to 20 years there has been an increased level of rainfall because of climate change um, which is a natural earth process and uh, so vegetation growth made it hard for me to read the ground like I normally do here in certain places where it was no longer desert it started growing brush and this kind of thing and I was able to verify and locate one of the original landing site not a crash that happened on May 18th, 1953, that was witnessed here, and uh, a lot of other things that I can detail. Well, uh, let's, let's back up, because uh, probably some of the people have never heard of the <coughs> pigment, and you're right, it's not a crash, apparently, I'm learning okay. myself, okay? Uh, why don't we give them the three-minute uh, spiel on what the Kingman landing, uh, I guess uh, I, I'm incorrect here, I thought it was a crash, but if there were landings... So <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, let's go from there. Why don't you tell us how you found the story? Obviously, it's in your backyard, correct? So right. uh, how did well, uh, you find uh, yeah. it? Let us know how it started. My backyard, I live on horse property, and my backyard is 35 miles of open desert. Wow. So I have a big backyard. and But um, because I live here, and it's known in certain circles, but it isn't, it isn't something that is... Um, spread around. And in Kingman, it's like Las Vegas took an example from Kingman, Arizona. What happened here stays here. Okay? And okay. so if you're from outside or you're the local city attorney and you've been here for 10 years, that doesn't mean anybody's going to talk to you about a UFO that landed in their front yard or something. They just won't do that. And uh, so mm -hmm. um, being able to accomplish getting... Uh, some relationship as far as friends uh, that are elderly old timers who trust a professional uh, to not uh, do things with with the information you have that they don't want and so I wanted to know if the Kingman UFO crash really happened it's just as simple as that what was the there folklore was, Harry what was the folklore the, the original story, well, you know what? That's the problem. Nobody really knows out there what the original story is. It was an interview done by a, an esteemed researcher back in Massachusetts by the name of Raymond Fowler, who happened to get a clipping of a story done in the Sudbury, Massachusetts, May, uh, April 23rd, 1973 newspaper, of an interview of a boy who was writing a book about UFOs for youth. He's 15 years old. His name was Jeff Young, is Jeff Young. And the clipping service sent him this, and there was a man mentioned 
and the boy mentioned who he had interviewed who has had examined a spaceship that's the way the boy put it in uh, 1953 in May and so Fowler ended up finding this man by the name of Arthur Stansel and all of the exaggerators who have told stories about Kingman get his name spelled wrong amongst everything else they do that's absurd and um, he interviewed Arthur Stansel, did a 65-page report, and turned it into NICAP, which was the forerunner of MUFON. That was about a one-hour visitation to the downed craft that landed. It was about one hour in time. That's the only thing officially that had been said outside of Kingman. And all of the other stories... All of the other 15 or plus versions out there right now are made up out of thin air. And I mean, everything from they were killed, there was one person that survived, he was an ambassador, uh, uh, it was headed for Los Alamos, it went, the craft went down going southeast, Los Alamos is west of Kingman, the craft didn't know what it was doing, there were, uh -huh. the, the, one is there was a ray gun fight with a retrieval team. You know, and it goes on and on. These books are available on Amazon. Well, Harry, what was the what was the gist of the uh, of so of what the, so the what I did testimony. is I was interested in the interview because Correct. this was conducted very well. Um, the man, um, the interview, the interviewer Raymond Fowler, did a very credible job. And I'll tell you something else that's very interesting. While we're getting into this, is that certain people who later would be involved in writing the first Roswell books followed this very closely. And I've had people say, gee, your story has so many similarities with Roswell. And I want you to understand, here's one of the reasons. Because Kingman was, became public knowledge before Roswell. People involved in the Roswell story wrote the books and that type of thing as much as seven years after the Kingman story, what little did come out that Fowler had done in a 65-page report, along with the drawing of the craft, description of the craft. Arthur Stansel was sent after spending 12 years at Wright-Patterson for real. He was really there. He was sent to Frenchman Flats. He basically was in the materials department. He had degrees as a physicist, as a mathematician. And as an engineer, for real. These are checked out. These are for real. And, and so he really was talking about something that happened here. And the Air Force was deceptive with scientists that were brought out and specialists that were all brought together on the 21st day of May. This is after the landing. And put in a Army 3301 GMC bus. There were 840 of them made. It was driven by a man by the name of Dennis, and they drove from Phoenix out old AZ-93, which had just was being improved from a wagon road uh, to a graded sand road out to reach southeast of Kingman. It didn't come to Kingman. And they, they went out to the site. And that one hour of him inspecting the craft to try and provide information 
to the Air Force in regard to what the estimated forward speed and fall rate, feet per second fall rate of the craft was based on the indentation in the ground below a five-ton flying saucer, a disc-shaped craft that had four living crew members and the whole thing. And it's amazing because there were some descriptions of the area to some degree uh, that if you were to find this place, you would recognize some of the things that Arthur Stansel had talked about in the interview he did back in 1973, 20 years after it happened. It so happens I interviewed the last living member of the United States Air Force retrieval team, a U.S. Air Force colonel, retired, a fighter pilot and test pilot. And as it turned out, that led me to another lieutenant colonel who just so happened to be uh, uh, working with and a buddy too in the service with the colonel who was at this particular UFO retrieval. And he did something no other witness. There were 45 witnesses living, now most all deceased, uh, who saw these craft go down one, at one place or another during the three different dates that the th there were three craft in one week. Okay, they went down. I don't know why they went down uh, and all of the things in regard to that as well. And we can get to that if we have time. But he mentioned one thing, and that one thing was a landmark. And to me, that was critical because I had been cruising about 400 miles in first gear in a Jeep Wrangler out here in the desert trying to determine where possibly could the Air Force have gone to, and where would this thing go down? This is a very large area. It's about the fifth largest county in the United States, Mojave County, in Arizona. And so there's a lot of area to cover, and I spent a great deal of time. And when I was given the landmark, it told me something. That it gave me what the needle looked like in the haystack, Okay. And it was a pyramid-shaped rock formation, which is not a common thing in geology here, okay? And I found it one day coming down a 1912 wagon road. And by the way, uh, satellite imagery for this area shows some of the roads that were running and being used clear back to 1918. And I had gone back and looked at roads, trails, to 1856 and walked forward so I get some kind of idea where things really are because some of the things that were being written about Kingman and I did not read all the junk because I didn't want to be influenced by anything other than raw research that I could find and I went to museum research libraries and uh, archives and to um, the government offices and looked at old documents and the type of thing you need to do to do legitimate, real research and not sit behind a computer monitor, cruising the Internet, reading other things that have been written that are wrong about things. This is troubles in historian because we have people who wrote something 400 years ago and they add a little twist of their own and it keeps getting passed on by people that copy other people's work 
and they add a twist. And by the time it reaches us at a campus at some university, we're being given faulty information. And okay. well, that's let's, one let's, of the things we have uh, to watch for. Sure. And I understand that. And I appreciate <clears throat> it. I appreciate that for sure. In fact, I think that's yeah. why some people, after a while, get exhausted with a topic or a story or a case because they don't know which version to believe. So uh, I kind that's of. That's the problem. And I, I wanted to overcome that. that. I appreciate that. Let's let's just go back real quick. So this thing started. I want to say it, it started to take up a lot of your time, correct? Yeah. As far as my research. time, this is what I do. I'm a historian, okay? And it's you know it's a historian basically when he's working on something or she's working on something. We don't leave any stones unturned, okay? We need to know, and because one little thing can lead to something very big being discovered and I found I verified with the drones where the landing occurred on 18 May and uh, I went from the landmark I drove to a designated place that was revealed by the man who was interviewed in 1973 and I looked out my driver's window of the Jeep and I was parked at a field kitchen the Air Force had had 60 years before, and everything they left behind was still there. I was the first person to arrive at the site since they left, including where they had built Dutch ovens using stones not native to the area. And I know where those the stones came from. There were things there that are datable, rare things under government military contract that were experimental and were made in 1950 and 51 only. Hundreds of them there, okay? And so um, then I started doing site investigation, could see where the, still can see it's a desert. And the erosion factor here uh, isn't like it was 500,000 years ago, which gave us all these odd-looking peaks and plateaus and tables and, and formations that you see in the skyline. I looked at the, yeah. uh, at the area, and I was able to determine where the bus parked, the cut that was made by the Air Force to turn that around, and a 40-ton M25 tank transport with a 38-foot trailer that was loaded at Camp Irwin. In 1951, it went from military infantry to armor as a designated priority for what is called Fort Irwin today. And... It just so happened it was two years before the craft went down. And so they had all the things that were handy to move something like a five-ton disc and put it on a trailer. There was no military presence, no matter what anybody says in their stories online and in DVDs. There was no military presence in Kingman, Arizona in 1953. Zero. They left August 1945. They left the big B-17 Arab training base forever. They never came back. And so stories about... Uh, okay, the, so there's the been lots of seen. stories that, that, that sort of muddy the waters is what, what you're getting at. Yeah. Okay, well, well, what actually happened? I mean, you researched this thing for how long? I mean, you're still doing it, it seems like. What, or did you ask me when did I start? No, I'm saying uh, you, know, you, you researched this for... Started I, started, I started serious research in 2006. Right, and you're still researching, correct? Ten years ago. 
Yeah. Okay. And, and, so and I'm sitting here with a 22-inch wide, hardbound, full-color, illustrated book that uh, is not, not available to the public and, okay. and probably won't be. Why don't, um, we try, why don't we try to tell the audience some of the things that you uncovered that, are, uh, that you believe are actual facts at this point? Because you are, like you said, a real historian. So I am. Yeah, exactly. So there are some truisms that came out of this investigation of yours, I imagine. Uh, and that's what I'm kind of would love to, to focus on because at no. first I thought, and you thought, they, these were crashes. And now we're, we're, we're learning through some of what you're saying that these were actual landings. But we're, It was a landing. It was w one landing of one disc? One landing, one disc crew for... The retrieval team was sent from Nellis Air Force Base. They arrived, were loaded aboard uh, some trucks. Uh, they had canvas over the back. The, the retrieval team themselves had no idea which way they left from uh, the Kingman Airport, which had been the, the training base back in uh, 1945. Okay. And they didn't know if they were going north, south, east, or west. They were just in there. The, the, the flap was closed in the back, and the truck took off. Um, the, the eyewitness who was involved with this from the retrieval team told me the travel time, estimated travel time to go there. Uh, the road they're talking about that existed then doesn't exist today because so it's cut in half by another road, and it works out perfect. Okay. The only roads coming from Phoenix work perfect, and that helped me zero down to where I found the thing that, lo that gave me the location that I could follow from an interview done in 73. When I got there, when they got there, the crew was standing outside of the craft. They couldn't go anywhere. There's no, this, this is a place so remote, the there's e no the self ET crew. The ET crew was outside the craft when, he got the, when the crash retrieval team... Uh, Four-member crew... Wearing what we call flight suits, they they weren't. Uh, they were described by the 85-year-old retrieval last member of the retrieval team, who gasped when he was telling me still the emotion, and he was very clear-minded, mm -hmm. and he described them as human. They human. were human, and they were about five feet in height. And they had uh, cropped, meaning it would be like we cut uh, uh, sandy-colored air. One of the four stood to the front. They took him as the uh, commander or the somebody in charge who, according to uh, not just this particular witness, but, uh, but in this case I'm telling you about him, um, and uh, spoke to them. In and English. I asked him, are you talking about you heard him with your ears or uh, touched my temple? You, did, you know, you hear him in a... And he said, as far as we could tell, we were hearing him. There was this, this one individual spoke. And that's not their bailiwick. These four were loaded up uh, a man, one of the servicemen were sent out with walkie-talkie. There's no phone signal there, even now. Nothing. 
and they had to take the walkie-talkie and a jeep and get out of there to call to be able to find what they're supposed to do. They've got a crew member here wow. telling them stuff. Yeah. Okay. What, what were they saying? What were they saying uh, telepathically to uh, these gentlemen, the crash retrieval team? Did he did he explain to you? The the craft was inoperable. Well, obviously, there it was. Sure. You know, and and um, they were asked by the retrieval team uh, um, that they would be removed from the area uh, because they can't leave them there. They're top secret. And in spite of what's written, and um, and they didn't have antenna in their head or suckers on the end of their fingers, none of this. And um, and so the only comment that came back from the pers- the individual that was speaking was that they would they would go with the retrieval team, but they asked that at no point in time would they be separated. And they and the retrieval team agreed to that, obviously, and loaded them up, and they were dispatched and picked up at the Arizona and uh, Nevada border. They were taken from the retrieval team, and those members came back uh, immediately. You know, and it's all of the roads that are claimed to have been used were never used. Uh, they just drove right straight up the desert. They went up two main roads that are out on the desert right now. One is partially paved today, but the other one is like it's concrete and it's desert. And I've driven this myself. And the craft was a problem because there was nothing in Kingman. Kingman was basically six blocks of a town called Bunch Town, and things that went out kind of down the street a ways and further out became known as String Town. It had a sheriff with nine deputies. One of the deputies was an undersheriff. This is for uh, uh, thousands of square miles of area of Mojave County, and uh, they they did the best they could, and they st- actually still do. It's, it's a hum- big job, but. Um, this this came to a head when um, equipment started being brought in to Kingman, and the 40-ton M25 tank transport was loaded on a flat car with some other lift equipment uh, and dispatched out of Yermo for uh, Camp Irwin uh, to four miles on the south side of Kingman and disembarked brought off at a landing, and it drove right through the middle of Old Town Kingman, which only had two roads then. That's critical for anybody who pays any attention all the stories are told. There's only two roads here in 1953. It was like, you know, it's like no television. There's all kinds of things. This is Mayberry, USA, yeah. living, living, breathing back then. And the people are, are good people, and, but the life was simple. And uh, things are completely different than the way they are now. And so, so in the middle of the night, you have this equipment going through Old Town Kingman. Well, the sheriff was alerted. And the sheriff and the undersheriff went out the next day to, to find out what's going on. And they were stopped by a roadblock because 20 military police were sent there. And they cordoned off the area and, and they set up 
tents on four corners out away from the craft as guard posts, literally. They set up a bivouac area. There was a, 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 a kitchen, I mean, a field kitchen there, and the remnants of the things they left behind. And it's uh, all datable, and it's absolutely extraordinary, and it is also an archaeological site now. It isn't a place where potholers can come out and souvenir hunters can come out and strip it bare like they did the site where Roswell was supposed to have happened, where it's been picked over for 65 years. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, with that, four days later, while they're getting all this gear together and bringing it out to move this craft, and the crew members are long gone. Okay? They can't. They weren't left hanging around waiting to be seen by tourists and things. They were gone right away. Top secret. Then, as it would be now. Four days later, on the fourth day, the craft in the middle of the night, after it had been inspected, this is on 21 May into 22 May, the early hours of 22 May. On 21 May, a busload with 40 scientists and specialists were dispatched from Phoenix, the windows taped over with missile tape, so they can't see out the sides. It's a 36-passenger bus with a jump seat for four or luggage. They put four in there. They had a total of 40 plus the driver. They arrived at the site on the evening, early evening of 21 May, and they had no idea that at 10 o'clock the same morning, Three men were about five flight miles away from where this craft was sitting in custody of the United States Air Force. And they were southeast when they saw at 10 a.m. eight UFOs, disks, one on each side of six hovering and the other six doing aggressive dogfight maneuvers. This was watched by a man who was under contract to train fighter pilots at three Air Force bases in the state of Arizona. It was watched by the sports editor of the newspaper at Prescott, Arizona. That's within 100 miles of Kingman. And a businessman who was also a pilot. They were there because of something they were doing for a a kids' fishing derby event that was out away from uh, Prescott and all of these, and they watched the, these UFOs for over an hour. That's on the front page, okay, all the way across. Flying saucers, okay, and the description. Objects noted in formation for over a full hour. The men at the landing site, the Air Force there, and some of the those other support people that came down from Nellis had no idea about the three that morning. Okay, they had no idea that these craft that could see one of their craft sitting on the ground in custody of the Air Force, they had no idea that these saucers were there or three men were there and the men didn't know anything about the Air Force. It was just Two different things happening. The bus came that same day in the eve- early evening. They examined. The uh, military police came to the door of the bus. 
They had a roster. They read a name. A man got off the bus. He was escorted by an MP to the very place of interest, of expertise that that person had to, to uh, examine the craft, which didn't have a dent or a scratch on it. Okay, it was in pristine condition. It's the craft. The entire Area 51 UFO story is based on. Hmm. Okay, it was taken intact, undamaged, all right, when they finally got it out. So this is what's going on. I also have uh, witnesses in regard to this where someone arrived later. The craft was already loaded and had a canvas over it, and they lifted the canvas back for this physicist to examine the craft to get a look at it before it was taken away north and northwest of Kingman across the desert in the middle of the night. It didn't travel any highways. The Air Force didn't close down Highway 40 from Kingman to Barstow, California. And the main reasons that story is untrue, and it's been repeated in books by people who are in the hierarchy of ufology. And the reason it's not true is because it would be 31 more years before there was a Highway 40. Okay? So it's like impossible. And the same thing with crossing the Colorado River and supposedly crossing a bridge. There's no bridge. Mm -hmm. and, and on and on and on. I mean, so it's all these things that I check because I don't want to just accept anybody's stories. I have to find some kind of semblance of fact and evidence to prove some of these things are really true before I'm even going to really pay much attention. Sure. So, on the way back, the, the retrieval crew, the craft could not cross over what we call Boulder Dam today, Hoover Dam. It could not cross over the dam. And the, the Army Corps of Engineers were waiting with a barge, and it was, it was handed off. And the retrieval team at that moment absolutely has no more information on what happens in the disposition, A, of the crew, or B, the craft, because it's handed off and it's none of their business. That's the way it worked then. That's the way it works now. I'm former mm -hmm. Army. I have some kind of idea what I'm telling you. And so on their way back, this is the 22nd, the morning of the 22nd, okay. and they're on their way back to Kingman when the Red Lake Futank UFO had the huh. same problem the other one had on the 18th, but it didn't make a landing. It ricocheted off of a rocky butte, uh, went out over a reservoir called Futank. That's what they're called. It's a livestock reservoir. They call them Futank in Arizona. Okay. Ricocheted off the top of the butte wow. and augured into the ground 0 0.21 miles from where it hit the, the top of the butte. It tore away the lower portion of the disc from this rock, and which I've climbed this thing three times. And uh, the uh, two of the crew suffered um, severe damage to their lower extremities they were removed the the retrieval team was one mile away when this happened wow. and yeah it, <laughs> right on one of the one of the two roads headed towards boulder dam yeah and 
yeah. So anyway, um, they uh, they drove up and uh, a early rancher by the name of Leonard Neal, who came up from the Big Sandy in 1892, was there. It's on his property where it went down. He and 11 residents watched this craft come down, ricochet off the butte. He thought, Leonard Neal, long since deceased, thought mm -hmm. it went into the reservoir. It didn't. It overshot it. Not by much, but it did. And it and where it augered in, you can see where it augered in, and you can also see piles of bottom rock dug up by the Air Force to get the fragments. They swept the area twice, and they dug up as many of the parts as they can get out uh, beyond. It was just a, a, basically a junk heap. And the two that were roughed up but survived were sent on to Groom Lake. Later, hmm. we would call it Area 51. That's where the yeah. first four went. And it's interesting because there's a correlation between researcher, uh, a researcher by the name um, uh, Richard, and I can't re remember his last name at the moment, but um, and a, he's long since deceased as well. And he writes about this in a book that he did and called Uninvited Guests. Richard Hall. There we go. Okay. All right. And, yeah, and, and uh, so all of a sudden some numbers that he's talking about in regard to Kingman, uh, he talks about uh, four, four dead coming from Kingman. Well, here's two dead now. Two were killed in the Red Lake crash. This is Red Lake, Mojave County, Arizona, so it won't be confused with Red Lake, Mexico, uh, New Mexico. Because there's a red lake over there, and uh, so basically they uh, removed. Uh, they told, by the way, they told Leonard Neal and the residents. Leonard Neal said, "Look, I can take you right over to it. We saw it go down, and there was a small convoy that were coming back." And they said, "No, what you need to do is you all need to go back in your homes and stay there, okay?" And warned them not to even come out. And this was something the Air Force was going to handle. And they did. And so they, they had equipment there. And this story is kind of mixed up a little bit with the landing. And uh, there are stories about supposedly uh, this, this particular thing happened 8.1 miles from the Air Force Tower at the base. And there's a long story about an airman supposedly there saw it on a PIP screen and looked out into the night sky, and this thing went down in the, the daytime, by the way, but oh. um, looked, looked out in the night sky and saw the flash of it hitting the ground. And, of course, the problem with that is there was no Air Force in Kingman. This was eight years after they had left, okay? And the, the tower still exists. It's on the National Register of Historic Places, and you can't go into it, but it's in excellent condition. It's wonderful, and there it sits at the airport, and there's no way you could see where the Red Lake craft went down from the tower. I know I've been up and looked, okay, and mm -hmm. to shoot footage from there. But the drones were taken in to the landing site area to fly 10 and 30 feet off the ground, off the deck, so I could read terrain. And the same thing happened at Red Lake because a friend of mine who's been a curator for about I don't know, 35, maybe 35 years now, um, wow. has spent 20 years out all around Red Lake. And he knew that it had to be out there because he interviewed, and I have that, 
uh, he interviewed a man who um, became a pastor and formed a church so that he could interview Area 51 workers back then to where they could tell him whatever they want to say and the information would be, te- be protected under separation of government mm-hmm. and uh, uh, religious uh, freedom. And so this pastor had told him in detail about this area, and he'd been out to it, and he tramped up the butte and uh, all kinds of places and couldn't find anything. And the same problem was that I had. You can't read to the vegetation growth, and so you can't look for and see anything that showed any kind of habitation or uh, and any no, kind of was there any, like a Geiger counter or any radiation detection or anything like that didn't around these areas that um, that the crash or the the landing on, sites were at. Yeah, on the butte there is a scar where the craft hit it. It's there right now. Okay, and and the and the and the and the ejecta the, f- from the craft because it augered into part of the hill before it ricocheted off yeah. of it, and mm-hmm. the ejecta and following that line, and of course with overflies even on top of the butte at ten feet and thirty feet, so you can really see and look in the directions the craft was headed. They were all yeah. coming generally from the from the northwest, north northwest headed south-southeast, and that's a flyway. Right now, still a flyway. And, uh, and this is why they got caught in this. Basically, the, all three of these craft got caught in a trap. That yeah. Something happened that they weren't expecting. These were, as the Air Force retrieval man told me, these were terrestrial craft. They were not interstellar inter, uh, type of craft. They had a place to go where they land on the ground, and mm-hmm. uh, we're calling it an underground base because there is one that sits down to the uh, south southeast past where the craft, the first one, landed. And they're all, all three were headed in that general direction. This is where yeah. AH-64 attack helicopters fly even now, and there's still no military installation here. And you have eight, I have them photograph all this stuff on um, movie film and um, burst shots from my Nikon and all kinds of things where you have like eight coming in low. They're heavy, and, they're, and so the rotor chop is loud, low, and they head right out to... The direction of where the old timers describe where the underground base is located, and mm. when they come back, they come light and quiet. Yeah. Okay. They're offloading something. Sure. I have no idea what. That's another matter. But it's just things going on. I have photographs of all of that, including some that are locked up in a safe, of where right in the middle of eight of these choppers, current issue choppers, there is a flying disc went right up through them and did like a roll right through the group of them and I have that on film and it's not blurry or fuzzy or almost like a picture of something or like you would create with Photoshop it's in the mm-hmm. original form with the digital date, time everything else. I have all kinds of things like wow. this. You know, and this is like now. No, I didn't go to the base. Old timers asked and pleaded that I not try that because there are, according to them, 
some people that were found who tried this, and they were later found deceased. And then again, uh, it was tried, and those people were never seen again. So, and that's mm-hmm. more recent times. So that's fine. I don't have. A, I don't need to see that, and I, I'm not going to try and see that. I have the information I need, and uh, but mm-hmm. the other type of craft they have is think of it as aircraft carrier, like we use for our navies, mm-hmm. and we and we call them motherships. Yeah. Well, I. I <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sorry. I, I know the mothership because I had an encounter myself with the mothership. And so, um, yeah, I know that aircraft carrier size. The one I had had uh, the encounter with um, was, uh, well, that's the only thing I could put the size on it. It's an aircraft carrier. To me, it looked bigger. But um, it had a huge glass dome uh, looking thing on top of it. I, I say glass, but to me, uh, it looked very diamondish uh kind of a a a type of material it didn't uh nevertheless it was it was humongous in itself and so on but that's just my quick experience there but i was going to ask you now whatever happened to the aliens that were their beings or whatever that bung the craft did you ever maybe were ever find anything out or tracked anything that nothing huh well let me tell you um i'll answer that in part and let me tell you about the rest of the rest sure and um I can't, <clears throat> pardon me, they can't tell me, the witnesses, the ones, the, the ones who I call first-hand eyewitnesses are ones who touched the crafts, okay? Mm-hmm. The others are eyewitnesses who aren't second-hand or third-hand or whatever that uh, tend to be what are used in describing other stories. It's just that they weren't, th- yeah. their, their locale wasn't to where they actually touched the skin of the craft or, or, or uh, the sleeve of uh, a flight suit on one of the crew members. Um, and they really, it, it makes me, and just getting the description of the, the crew members, you see people on the street, you're walking down the street every day that mm-hmm. w- would look just like one of them. I mean, it's like you see the, they don't have, they aren't grays, they don't have big eyes. And all of these things, they're very much like we are. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're slight in build. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm going to give you another story. Now, you have to understand, I didn't expect, I didn't even expect to find the first one. It was, I just wanted to see, you know, what was behind the story because how much junk is made up. And yeah. um, it just so happens that on the... 17th day of January, 1953, the Robertson's panel uh, met, and um, they met over a period of five, five days and spent 12 hours reviewing UFO things in regard to what Central Intelligence wanted them to do, and this includes a commission, or the panel includes a commission that Albert Einstein was on. I mean, these are real people. There are pictures of that, that panel and the report is now declassified. So you mm-hmm. can see it, probably redacted, but still, you can see it. And, and that was basically to find out ways to dispense with all of the stories about UFOs and to uh, discredit anyone who told stories about seeing UFOs landing, crash, or flyby, and to make arrangements with Disney Studios and others to create goofy cartoons and this type of thing 
to make it very unpopular to be saying in public that you saw uh, an alien or a UFO or anything else happening. This was happening just the month or a few months before the first craft landed here, and yeah. uh, which I thought was interesting because yeah. it was getting to be a problem. And there's so many other things that I could tell you, like, uh, you know, like uh, we knew about, we were having UFO sightings in Arizona before there was ever a story in the newspaper about a Roswell UFO. Hmm. You know, and, and hmm. it's like the man given credit for the first modern sighting of UFOs uh, over Mount Rainier, uh, who supposedly saw uh, nine UFOs, Kenneth Arnold, about Did, 3 o'clock okay. in the afternoon of June 24th. You know, it was, he reported it on the 25th, but it was, but UFOs were reported by three different places on the 24th of, of June, 1947, before Kenneth Arnold ever saw anything. And, and he knew that. Actually, there were five. But, um, so the, but he got a lot of attention, and he liked it. And that's pretty obvious. So mm -hmm. my research covers a lot of stuff that's not, that kind of blows some holes in things that surprised me. And the Red Lake crash surprised me. This, in Arizona, there are 15 poisonous creatures that habit the state. Eleven of them are in Mojave County. The Mojave Green, which is a vicious little guy that has a couple of different types of poison on board, um, occupies this butte. This is still government-owned, controlled, the Rocky Butte. The only way you can climb this, the rocks are so profuse and, and so loose and large, like fist, double fist, football size, that I had to move sideways to climb the hill because I was packing gear and still watch for snakes. Because yeah, you, you got to watch for the rocks. They, they really love the well, yeah. So, that. yeah. And, you, and you're out in the heat's like 105 and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, and it's the, the, the whiny complaints of somebody who does field work. But you have to be careful. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm saying this because if somebody listening decides they can rush right out and do this, you have to be very careful. Yeah, uh, because you can get injured uh, up on the Hualapai Mountain, and this craft went down on the back side of it, down where the mountain meets the desert. Okay, and mm -hmm. it landed, and uh, the first one, um, the 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 javelina lived there, and if they see you, they're like a wild boar, and they have this temper that if they see you, they very often just attack you, and the tusks and the whole thing, and you don't want that to be a problem when you're out there thinking that you can just go along looking for UFOs yeah. or where they've been. So, but the third craft is when this whole story for me became a science fiction. And uh, um, that happened two days after the UFO crash at Red Lake. The UFO at Red Lake was 22 May, 1953. The next one was 24 May, 1953, in plain view of Old Town Kingman. Hmm. And okay. what happened there was, as described by witnesses, 15 witnesses of that, they saw what they described as a disc, and it just suddenly, 
headed right for the north face of the Wallapai Mountain, which is 8,256 feet high. It's covered with pine trees. It, they were logging this mountain for years. There was a mill 16 miles from where the UFO slammed into the mountain and set it on fire. And it was a wild, out-of-control forest fire for over a week set by this. And 1953 <laughs> technology to fight fire did not include tanker airplanes or anything else beyond they took up bucket, large tubs, metal galvanized tubs, filled with, they filled them with water, and they used gunny sacks and soaked the gunny sacks to beat the grass part of the fire. And the other men used <laughs> shovels. And all of these, the technology from the time. And a Forest Service worker came up with more things for the volunteers and noticed two individuals very close to the scene of the fire. That's where the craft came down and hit. On the other side, the Air Force had been there and drug away two corpses and some pieces of craft, and they had to evacuate because the fire was started up the mountain, and they couldn't stay there. And they were unobserved, and interestingly enough, this comes to the total number of four deceased that Richard Hall mentioned in his book, that there were four dead aliens removed from Kingman, or not from Kingman, from Arizona, but without being specific of yeah. where. And, uh, and then he talks about the UFO uh, that Raymond Fowler interviewed about and gives him full credit for the discovery where some people say Richard Hall's the one that saw it in six, or knew all about it in 64 and all that. That's not true. Uh, this is the story from 73. And this is all very complex. I'm sorry about that. But the, the <laughs> bottom line very was... Very interesting. The bottom line was Joe, the Forest Service worker, saw these two individuals who were near the fire. They didn't belong there. They were wearing some kind of coveralls, flight suits, okay? Yeah. And, and so there's a reporter there, pencil behind his ear, shirt not tucked in his pants right anymore because he's covering the fire and he's got a little pad, takes a pencil off his ear and he's writing in there and he sees Joe. And Joe's over there talking to these individuals, and he takes them into custody because Joe, the Forest Service worker, thinks they're arsons because there was no lightning, no rainstorm, no weather storms of any kind the entire month of May, 1953. Okay, so the craft mm -hmm. wasn't knocked down by lightning, which is another story. And the reporter follows Joe down to the sheriff's office, which was in the basement of the... 1915 Mojave County Courthouse, and the two individuals he wrote down as two, quote, strange-looking men, unquote, and he followed them down, and because the reporter knows everybody at the sheriff's office, there's four yeah. deputies, he tries to get in, and it's two doors, uh, you have a window to talk through, this is all still there. Sure. And that's another story, because I found a document describing it, and I was told the building had been torn down by the sheriff's office and even the local museum. And uh, I found out that it wasn't. And, and I've been there, and the court, the head of court security from Mojave County took me there. And I stood in right where I'm telling you about. 
including seeing an oak bench the Forest Service worker sat on while a deputy went out to get sheriff because the sheriff's not in. It's Mayberry, USA. Mm -hmm. Okay? They bring him back. These guys, the two strange-looking men, are locked in a detention room that is solid concrete. The ceiling is the floor, main floor of the courthouse. It's 14-inch steel-reinforced concrete. The walls, there's, it's below grade. No windows, no doors, nothing. It's below the surface of the ground. And when you lock the door to this room, there's no way out. Harry Houdini couldn't get out of there. <laughs> and you have three deputies waiting right by the door, and a Forest Service worker sitting on an oak bench right by the door. The sheriff came. He was briefed by the Forest Service worker. He told The sheriff told the deputy, open up the door. They stepped in the room, and the two strange-looking men wearing flight suits right at the source of where their craft set the mountain on fire were gone. And the reporter wrote down, and they vanished. Okay, what am I supposed to do? And and so it's like, this is impossible. Uh, and but here I was. I had a description of a do- in a document described the interior of the old courthouse, and not well, the old sheriff's office, which was in the courthouse, but I didn't yeah. say where it was. And it was amazing because I I read it off to the head of security from Mojave County Court, and I said, just tell me yes or no if I'm right. If this describes it, and he said, "Come with me," and so I have in my in in my book, and then eventually in uh, a DVD re- uh, release. If if we don't do a regular film here, um, I have uh, pictures all inside the room and where everything lays out, and this is all quite real. And so, whether these individuals were from Alpha Centauri, I can't tell you. But I can tell you what I found, and uh, they, in fact, um, had three different craft, and two of them crashed. One of them made a forced landing. It was taken to Groom Lake. It is the vehicle they've talked about. Whatever happened in regard to any reverse engineering, this Mm -hmm. is the one. And uh, what caused it? Why Kingman? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why Kingman? Yeah. Why a strange place yeah. like that? And, and whatever Kingman? happened to this right. gentleman? Why Kingman? In 1953, this, they set up, the Air Force set up three experimental, they were like mobile radar units where they over, began overpowering them to try to achieve 150 mile range on the radar. Ground radar then was still World War II vintage, and it had a range of 25 miles. Rule of thumb was pretty primitive. You want if you want if you want to double the distance it can see, you have to double the power. They were short pulse microwave radiation type of microwave generators that were they were ideally built where you could bolt one to the next one until you could increase the power to whatever level you were hoping to, to do. And the reason for the sudden placement of these in Kingman, okay, beyond the, the fact of how the geology set up, is that there was a fear by the Air Force of, from intelligence that the Soviet Union was building a bomber, long-range bomber that was nuclear-capable that could fly over the pole 
and come down on us on a surprise attack and bomb us with nukes. And this is Cold War era and uh, Korean War era. And so these were being tested. And this consisted of the operator, the operator of the radar and the technician who was basically just bolting on another uh, microwave short pulse uh, radiation radar system generator. And you had three of them, and they didn't plan it this way. They just set one up at what is called Radar Hill, still in Kingman, Old Town, and one off to the east, due east, and then one over in the, the more eastern side of Red Lake. And it was a triangle. They never thought about that we're making a triangle. They just wanted to, to, to space them out to see how far they could see with radar imaging. And, and there was no frequency locks on radar then. So when they turned them on, they were all sending different frequencies simultaneously. And old timers complained about the birds were being killed. Okay. Hmm. And uh, for reasons that are pretty clear, they were flying into a place and they were getting cooked, essentially, irradiated. And this is also the flight path. So the morning they hey, kicked Harry, them on. Let me jump in here. Just yep. Let me jump in here because we've got to start to Go wrap ahead. up here a little bit. And I want to ask you uh, a couple of questions that a lot of people have been asking me when you sure. knew you were going to be on, which one of which is the following How. In your opinion, because you've been researching this uh, event for a long, long time now, how are these people, these crash retrieval folks, how are they handpicked? How do you think that in 2016 we can only count on two, two hands how many guys have really come forward out of Area 51 to talk about what they've been a part of? How are they keeping these people silent? And how do we keep so many people in the dark about something like this? That was one question? Yeah, that was about 50. It was a loaded question, though, Harry. Loaded. Uh, okay. I oh. didn't actually hear <laughs> Harry, I let you talk for an hour. Come on, man. <laughs> what, was the, what was the first part? What was the first part? Because your, your audio is very low to me. Okay. The first let's, part let's, you asked me. First part I want to ask you is you've been researching this event for a long, long time. How did these crash retrieval folks keep this? Uh, under wraps. Uh, did they talk to you about some of their tactics when you met with them? How do they keep it under wraps? Correct. Well, if you're at, are you asking me about how do the Air Force keep it under yeah, wraps the crash or, or how do the population keep it under wraps? No, the, the, the people folks. in Kingman in 19, from, 19, from the beginning of the training base era in the early 1940s until the end of the war in 1945, People in Old Town Kingman, 3,400 people on a busy day, and that would be um, uh, people that live beyond Stringtown. We call them like, we call them like rural, okay? Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, it's like farms and ranches, like Rancher Leonard Neal. The whole thing was no more than 3,400 people. And they, the, the, the core area of Kingman, Old Town, six blocks and that was Bunchtown, and Stringtown kind of strung out for a ways. That's how I got the name, Stringtown. Those were all, sub all the people that lived in the main core were subjected to blackouts. They were living under undeclared martial law, okay? When they were told 
not to talk about something they didn't talk about things. They yeah. also had all, they are all, almost all, related in fa family relation going back to Leonard Neal. The, the current archaeologist for B the Bureau of Land Management is one of the family from that time. And he said, they're still that way. And, I, and of course, I know. Um, but uh, they don't tell people on the outside. And if, and if a, a member of within the families as such, within the, the old timers, the family of that period, who were very, very patriotic, and that's why I'm saying, and without exaggeration, if there'd been a UFO land in their front yard and they weren't supposed to tell about it, you'd never ever hear about it at all mm -hmm. that's just the way it was and and if you did and this happened and i won't detail anything too much about it but if you told an outsider things they shouldn't know you were ostracized from the family and that really happened and i know of an instance i was told by one of the family members uh and two cousins of that that person and uh and i don't repeat that anywhere uh the details of that and anything that's within within the archives of everything that I've collected that will go to two different museums when I'm done, and um, the material needs to be uh, properly archived. And so that's that's your answer at the front of it. That's why I said you know Las Vegas use a no tell you know uh, you, you come and you don't, nobody hears about what goes on and that kind of stuff. That's the way it is in Kingman. And that's the way it was. It stays and, in Vegas, uh, you know, uh, with the old saying, O.J. Simpson saying, right? What goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas or something? Exactly. Mm -hmm. What goes on and what went on in Kingman stayed in Kingman. And, Did you say that? And, and so me getting some of the things that I have that I can use helps me with this. And it helped me find other things on independently so that I can establish a document trail and a course that shows something happened, not only what something was, but, you know, I'm looking at pages here with, with doc, copies of documents and, and, and everything else that, that are, people can be privy to about those, even if they're not allowed to see other things. Now, they kept it quiet for those reasons. The United States Air Force, you know, let's talk about, for just one moment, disclosure. That was the buzzword 10 years ago. Everybody, oh, disclosure, disclosure at the conferences. I know, I've, I've known some of the, the top people that run the biggest conferences in the U.S., and I've spoken at several. Uh, and what's interesting is that it, after it kind of wore out its... It, it just wore itself out, the welcome, because nothing was ever disclosed. And an interest in going to, to listen to speakers and go to conventions, this kind of stuff, on that subject faded, and it's come back again. But the government doesn't have any reason whatsoever to have to disclose formally anything about anything at all. They just, if they want it secret, it'll stay that way. If you really think that they'll come out and it'll change something, um, you know, I think you can be thinking that for the next 40 or 50 years you know, if your lifespan goes on that long, and I hope it does. But the fact is the, the government's not going to say, why should they? And what's going on now 
in regard to craft coming out of Area 51, my goodness, we see all kinds of things. But then I've, I've seen a lot of things before. And Edwards Air Force Base is to my west. And Groom Lake, which was acquired for, as it was an Army Air Base, it was acquired and passed on to Edwards in 1951. <clears throat> it's an extension to Edwards. And it was for what I'm talking to you about. And it didn't have the title of Area 51. It was a Army Air Force, old Army Air Force base. And it was handed off. And people go, well, geez, they didn't have any money right then. Yes, they did. In 1951, black funds, black budget money was expended. And a lot of things were accomplished at Groom Lake before they got a public congressionally viewable budget in 1955. And I would add in 1955, they closed down these three mobile radar systems here with just an operator and a tech for each one. And they brought in 200 Air Force and they put the forerunner of backscatter on Radar Hill in Old Kingman, Arizona, 1955. Harry, I got you know. a question for you, and maybe I, I missed it because I stepped out for a split second there. Uh, was the craft that you're reporting here, or we're talking about, the same one that Bob Lazar talked about? No, it's... <laughs> no. Um, let me okay. tell you something else. Um, if you go back and look at the UFOs being reported, when we start talking about disks, we get past the dirigible balloons of 1896, and they call them a UFO. UFOs have been seen in Arizona. I've been able to track it back to a game warden who regularly watched UFOs flying over a rim here in 1913. Okay, so it isn't like this is like brand new stuff. But uh, right, but I'm right, not right. talking old balloons. But Lazar's craft reflects evolution as far as the technology, the way we think and the way we build things. Some of the earliest flying saucers type craft um, are described and and basically the boilerplate, the outer the outer parts of the craft are riveted together with like bridge rivets because it's more modern looking than the old bolts with nuts and washers on them. And because we didn't have the technology yet to do almost seamless work that we do now. And, of course, the carbon fiber fiber stuff, if you've ever been around it, uh, it's, it's seamless, okay? And this craft was seamless. And it had, and not because uh, Klaatu and Gort uh, in 1951, uh, that craft, which is an, by an excellent science fiction film, um, and it influenced some of the descriptions of stuff. But what when you talk about Lazar's craft, you remember I have the drawings from 1953, okay? I have the drawings from 1953 of the craft that landed without so much as a scratch on it. And uh, it is much cleaner, much, um, much better design than the one that Lazar's looks more like a 54 Datsun. Okay, or I mean, a seventy-four, <laughs> a nineteen seventy-four yeah. Datsun, with the 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 way the edges are and the and the various things going around the top, uh, on the what we'll call the upper deck or whatever, uh, 
this, the thing that came out of Kingman, if anybody wants to see what it looked like, uh, an artist rendering, um, Michael Schratt, who's a good friend of mine, good man, yep. um, and he listened to me speak at the UFO Con in the Bay Area, um, and he's been investigating these things for quite some time. And I came out for just a short period. I spoke for MUFON back at uh, Covington, Kentucky. And I told them I'm not going to reveal everything I've found and because it's still in progress. And I had no idea how lucky I was. Because if I had done that, we'd all be reading about new versions of it um, because of uh, how things are picked up by uh, some of the hucksters. And they take off with it and create their own new version. But... Um, so Michael came to me <clears throat> very excited. I, I had a, a audience that was petrified by, uh, seeing stuff that was real. And, and what I love to do with the audience and what I'm doing that will come out in the U S trade journal book for the public is that I'm giving people things they can grab onto and go look at or look up and prove to themselves. It's true, okay? You can look at it from six directions, and it's true every time. It's fact. It's not like I'm putting in how I feel. When I talk about what the witnesses say to me in interviews that I have done with living people and, and comments and journals and things from people since deceased before I started, that what I'm making sure everybody understands is this is as told to me this is not my version this is not me making up the story this is what came to me and these will be the things that will be duplicated and put in two museums uh, for for posterity because there's all kinds of things but the craft design changes over time yeah. by the technology of the people that existed at the time, these stories are written. You almost have wood-burning smoke with boilers running these things at one point. And you come forward, and one is, there's a cutaway version that it's uh, about 19, the early 50s, and it shows like a massive center column inside the craft and gyros spinning underneath below the floor, you know, to create some kind of force field to break gravity and whatever. And gears and levers and all of this. Yeah. This is not the same. And something happened to the avionics system or, or, or the propulsion system and these non-hardened craft that when they came through the overpowered radar system systems, there were three, whether because they were laid out the way they were laid out or because it was just so powerful. I say, and, and I'm, I've had a little argument uh, with one man where this was presented in, in, uh, at Tarquinia, Italy. That's 56 miles from Rome, okay, at a conference that happens there every year. And the only objection of the entire audience in Rome or in uh, Italy was one man didn't believe that this could actually affect a modern, just a modern airliner like a 737 that, that uh, flying into this area with the radar uh, would have any effect. And I said, basically, you could end up, the craft could uh, roll over on its back and go right into the ground. The pilot would lose control of it because 
even cell phones at this very moment cannot be turned on in an aircraft during landing and takeoffs because they emit a small signal that has been followed to where it has actually turned the autopilot off with no alarm happening so the crew isn't alerted or affected uh, things like the flapperons or ailerons. And so that's why it's still illegal. And I even post a thing in the book uh, of a recent arrest of a woman who refused to turn her phone, cell phone off. She was removed by TSA and placed under arrest because she wouldn't turn her phone off because it can still affect non-hardened aircraft. This isn't going to bother a, a 117 stealth fighter or an F-15, that sure. kind of thing. Yeah. So, but, so, Lazar's, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, go to Kingman, www.kingmanufocrashers.com, and that's right. a website of mine, okay. and you will see what the craft looked like, and, and based on the description of the craft from the drawings I have that was passed on to Michael Schratt, he paid a, a, a wonderful artist to do uh, a recreation in, in uh, fine art of the craft. And, um, and I have exclusive use, you know, of using it. It's on the front cover of the book. And it's sitting at the landing site with uh, the, the very lights, the carbon arc lights that are on it at night to look at it. There was a quarter moon. And you know what? I checked and there was really a quarter moon. And that's what the witness said. There was a quarter moon. At the time, there was clear skies and other temperatures and all that kind of stuff that just fits in. You, you have to find the kinds of things that put all this together. And by the way, I found part of a P-39 Air Cobra that hit a uh, in 1944 training exercise, hit a B-17, killed 17 men, unfortunately, because of a collision they had during a mock strafing run. But it's one mile from where the Red Lake craft went down, the UFO. And, oh, wow. and uh, mm -hmm. over a thousand people looked for that uh, hillside and found nothing. And my curator friend took me out, and I have part of that P 39 from the, it's apart from the cockpit, sitting right here in my office right now. Oh, wow. It, it, sticking with Lazar real quick, what are your thoughts on, on Bob Lazar's story? Your personal Come opinion? again. Sticking with Bob Lazar for a second, what's your personal opinion on Bob Lazar's story? I'm not getting it. Say it again. You think? What do you think about Bob Lazar and his and his credibility about working at Los Alamos and uh, his his experiences and all that he says that he knows? Yeah. What do you think of Lazar's story? I mean, do you, how credible I, do you think it is? I I really can't judge. I really can't judge him. Mm -hmm. um, um, I didn't. I haven't. I don't want to. That isn't my business. And uh, I can tell you that the craft, the craft that. Uh, that I've seen illustrated, uh, that's attributed to him, doesn't, it sort of matches the craft from the actual drawings from a first-hand eyewitness. And uh, for people to see that craft, um, they can do that by going to, to what uh, I have in the, in the website. And um, the, one I, the one I've seen that was made into a model is kind of clunky up against the one that uh, <laughs> that was examined and removed and taken to Groom Lake. You know, so what can I say? And it's like there are some other people involved in this, 
And there are some other areas. Um, I had people try to discourage me to stay away from Aztec. I was told that 18, it's a story made up by 18 or 19 people. But, you know, I've seen so much wrong, so much misinformation, deliberate misinformation put out about Kingman. It makes me wonder about other places and whether, one, if they're just hype or if it's junk that was created to keep anybody from checking. Because yeah. Kingman was suppressed by disinformation by some of the some of the better known UFOlogy people uh, who told wild stories. One said he searched all the newspapers within a 100 mile radius of Kingman, Arizona, even Las Vegas, and not one word was mentioned about any UFOs. And I just already told you about three men watched eight UFOs, six of who were doing aggressive dogfight maneuvers within five minutes flight time from one of their crafts sitting on the ground in the custody of the U.F. Air Force. You yeah, know, it's that's like... crazy, uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it's like, uh, and, and I also, when I check, because I check, because when somebody makes a claim like that, it's like, you got to be kidding. You, you checked all the papers, and so I find out there's only two in 1953. I mean, I didn't have to put on my hiking boots to go and find out that <laughs> what, you know, what the archive said. And... Um, and I did go find out, and I, and I went through page by page since 1945 to 1955, so I would cover anything before and after, so I get some kind of an idea. One page at a time, big, bound newspapers from the era, the original stuff, right in the archives, and, and um, there, there's all kinds of stuff. I will tell you this, if we have just a minute here. Sure. Go for it, yeah. A, a big shocker. All right, we talk about Roswell. And I have to talk about Roswell. And, I, and I'm not going to, I won't take a lot of time telling people ultimately about this. But what I found out about Roswell is a kind of a disappointment. And I'm glad they have their celebrations there. And I think that's all very cool. But one of the most frightening and the first and maybe only aggressive account of a, um, attack tactics being used by flying discs, UFOs, flying saucers, okay, happened right when the Roswell supposed crash occurred and two businessmen at 500 feet in elevation were in descent coming into the Kingman airport and were attacked by UFOs flying from the south underground base, who buzzed them uh, multiple times and to the point they thought they were going to get rammed and die. And that is front page news in, in the newspaper that was published in Kingman. And it was an aggressive act taken against these men and it was reported on the 7th of July, 1947, and that's within five days of the alleged Roswell crash, which I found interesting as they're not sure if it was the 2nd or the 3rd or the 5th in Roswell. How come they don't know the date? You know, know. and it's, Harry, <laughs> Harry, we're out of time. True story. <laughs> yep. Well, yeah. Well, uh, thanks for Thank you so on. much for having me on. Um, oh, please, everyone, you. have go yeah. to the website. That'll help. 
All right, really my friend. Thanks for coming. It was a great show. I appreciate everything you've uh, you've told us, and I tell you, yep. you've got a lot to say. And fascinating uh, stuff. Yeah. Harry, give us give us the website one more time for the audience. Yes. the The website is www.kingmanufocrashes.com. All lowercase. Kingmanufocrashes.com. All right. Great stuff. UFOcrashes.com. Harry, thanks for coming on. Anybody else uh, going back to work tomorrow? I feel your pain. You've been listening to Euphonaut Radio on a Monday night here on PSN Radio Network. We'll see you next week with Bob Lazar. I'm just kidding. No, we'll see you next week with somebody. All right. Take us out, Angel. Thank you.